Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Well, the shares of Rockwell Collins, they are up about 4%. This follows a report from Bloomberg on Friday that United Technologies may be considering an acquisition of Rockwell Collins. And here to tell us more about this potential deal is Bloomberg Intelligence's Joel Levington. He is an expert in the world of corporate debt. And Douglas Rothiger, he is our aerospace and autos analyst uh, for Bloomberg Intelligence. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being here in the studio in our 1130 headquarters. You know, uh, Doug, I want to begin with you because sure. uh, can you tell people why forget let's put the price aside that's going to be joel's problem he's going to figure out how to pay for it uh why would um utx why would united technologies want to buy rockwell collins sure yeah good morning thanks for having us the strategic rationale behind creating a 40 billion dollar revenue aerospace portfolio is largely to defend against the concerted efforts of Boeing, I would say, for aftermarket services and revenue that they're trying to uh, get into pretty aggressively and twofold to largely gain pricing power and scale, right? So as Boeing and Airbus uh, work through uh, years of development of aircraft, they're largely focused on profitability right now, con- you know, focus on improving margins, and a lot of that is going to trickle down to supply chain pricing pressure. So as you see, uh, United Technologies, uh, you know, in this potential deal, deal uh, clearly it's an effort to, you know, fight against that. Joel, uh, come in on this because it's one thing to have a great theory about, you know, uh, air uh, aircraft control systems, you got pilot systems, uh, avionics, all this thing, that's Rockwell Collins. Uh, is there a price at which this deal just looks bad? Because, I mean, we've been down this road before, right? I mean, we, we've seen, in a, you know, Rockwell Collins has been kind of talked about as an acquisition target previously. That's true. And uh, given where the market is with high valuations, uh, I, what I can tell you is that the math works with about a 20% premium, uh, which is pretty traditional for uh, an industrial asset. So you can make the math work uh, relative to uh, the EPS growth, which I think Doug had pinned out at about 7%. And then from a balance sheet perspective, uh, you could lever the company up to a little over three times um, on a net debt basis, which is actually better than uh, when Honeywell tried to buy UTX uh, a little over a year ago um, and perhaps retain the single A rating that the company wants to maintain. Well, having said that, I mean, would it be any problem for them to raise the money? I don't think so. I mean, we got a thing today, one and a half billion dollar bond offering from Tesla. So I guess, you know, everybody can borrow money. Right. And that's coming uh, with like a 5% coupon handle on it. So so maybe you and I should, and Doug can uh, open up a business together and and finance it with some debt. But I I do think kind of the interesting or maybe the more interesting way of doing things would be if uh, this would lead to a separate split of United Technologies, which has also been discussed uh, where you'd have an aerospace business and an industrial business. Uh, to me, that kind of makes the most logic and sense, uh, given what uh, their peers have done, whether you look at a, a GE or a Danaher or an Emerson, 
uh, where it seems to be all the rage these days to be uh, a company that's single focused as opposed to a diversified industrial with some pluses and minuses. Doug, just come in a little bit more about margins and pricing. And if you can, maybe use an example for Rockwell Collins, because this idea of an aftermarket, uh, we all know that, you know, when you buy an automobile, for example, the true cost is not what you pay. The true cost is what you pay for the life of the automobile. Right, right. So if you look at Rockwell Collins and their recent acquisition, BE Aerospace, their, you know, typical operating margins are north of 20%, which is well above what United Technologies generates on their aerospace portfolio. And a lot of that comes from a very large uh, business of aftermarket uh, products and services, right? So when you go and buy used aircraft, you completely tear out the insides, the guts of it, refit it with uh, new seats, new interiors, and boom, your customers think they're sitting in a brand new airplane, right? So again, all that's high margin and would, uh, you know, I ran the numbers uh, uh, over the weekend if you combine on a pro forma basis, uh, Rockwell Collins uh, into United Technologies aerospace portfolio, they look at you know a, a margin boost of 100 to 200 basis points, and that's just on the you know excluding any synergies or anything like that 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 are potentially there. But I want to bring in Starboard Value for just a second here because they were a focus last year, I believe, uh, when it had when you when just mentioned that BA. Uh, aerospace, right? Correct. The the aqua the BE Aerospace acquisition that closed in in April. Uh, Joel, I mean, they were pushing. They were saying, "No, don't buy anything. We 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 want you to split as you were just saying in, in a new strategy." Right, and and selling out at a premium might be the elegant way out for uh, Rockwell Collins and their management team. Uh, so it, clearly, you could see that. And I think if you look at uh, what's happened with activists in the multi industrial space. Again, there has been a, a huge push. You could look at- uh, They want it to get simpler. They want it to get simpler. They want to get multiples that are focused on the different sectors. And they want different balance sheets to reflect that. So in the case of United Technologies, what you have, putting the aerospace business aside, is this industrial business with carrier, their security operations, um, and all the HVAC equipment that could be levered, let's say, at about three and a half times uh, to mimic other peers. And with that, you could take a $20 billion dividend. That goes a long way to paying for Rockwell Collins. Yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds good on the fi- on the balance sheet, right? I mean, it looks good financially. I'm wondering, Doug, is there a technical or even a, a sort of product reason to keep it all together? Because one part of the business helps to inform the other part and it goes back and forth. Um, I think for the equity shareholders to really get comfortable with this, we'd have to uh, get back to what Joel was mentioning about separating um, the businesses. The right. the EPS accretion of seven percent is is okay. It's uh, it's it's going to be a very expensive acquisition. You know, uh, Rockwell Collins up forty percent from October when they announced Correct. acquiring B Aerospace. And again, Joel mentioned probably looking at twenty percent or so premium on top of that. Um, so. I mean, we'll see how the 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 plans uh, you know play out. But isn't this a, it's a cycl- is it a cyclical business to a certain extent? I mean, I know you know aftermarket you always got to replace the seats, you know avionics and so on. But I well, mean, it, the, the nice thing about aftermarket parts and services is that it's generally counter cyclical to what you have with new production, right? So when you're a, a first tier OEM supplier uh, to Boeing and Airbus. You're you know you're at their mercy in terms of raising and lowering production and the cycles of that. Uh, uh, important offset to that is the aftermarket services business, which again is very high margin, where a lot of these parts suppliers, you know, uh, uh, butter their bread, as they say. All right. Well, uh, you know, Joel, last point to you. You know, if 
if Rockwell Collins, if this deal happens, mm -hmm. you think you're going to see other deals? Uh, you're always going to see other deals. I mean, well, because, you know, this is like the consolidation. This is the special of the month, right? Oh, everyone kind of gets in this fever of, oh, we got to consolidate and then split, right? Uh, certainly in the, uh, aeros uh, the aerospace supply chain, I think you're, you have to see consolidation happen because as Doug was pointing out, as Boeing uh, tries to become more vertically integrated, you have to be able to differentiate and push back on your, on your client. Yeah. Well, thanks very much for being here, both of you. I really appreciate it. Uh, Joe Levington is our senior credit analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence and uh, Douglas Rothiger. He is an uh, aerospace defense analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. And just by way of a uh, kind of shout out to Boeing, they did a flyby that actually flew around the United States in the shape of a Boeing airliner. Paul Sweeney, he knows everything about uh, media and the internet. He is our U.S. Director of Research uh, for Media and Internet Analyst for uh, Bloomberg Intelligence. And Paul, thanks very much for coming in. My pleasure. Uh, I want to begin by just uh, asking you about CBS and something with AT&T, because um, you remember when AT&T launched that DirecTV Now service? Well, they just reached an agreement with CBS because that'll give them a, a lot more programming. Can we look forward to more of these kinds of deals and what's in it for, for both of them? Yeah, I think we're going to see more of these types of deals. Uh, and DirecTV Now is a streaming direct-to-consumer uh, uh, app uh, similar to a Netflix. And um, and it's kind of a, a little bit of a skinny bundle, if you will. But CBS just uh, announced that they're going to be part of it. They're going to be on air. That's very good for DirecTV Now because CBS is the number one ranked uh, broadcasting network in terms of total audience. So Plus, they have NFL football. So uh, it's certainly a programmer and a source of programming that you want to have on your service. Uh, if you're CBS, um, you're like a lot of these traditional media media companies and you're trying to figure out um, the business is changing. Um, my viewers are viewing my content on lots of different uh, uh, types of platforms. It's not just with the rabbit ears over the air like it was 50 years ago. It's not even just on cable television. It's now on satellite. And now more and more, it's now uh, direct to consumer uh, on some of these apps. And so I think if you're CBS, you're ABC, you're Disney, you're all, any of these players, you're trying to figure out do I need to be on all these platforms? If so, what do I need to get paid to make it worth my while? What happens to CBS? Because it, uh, I know that you've mentioned in the past that CBS almost is like a standalone when it comes to programming content. Yeah, CBS is a you know it's it's the really the only uh, standalone uh, broadcast network uh, that investors can can play. Uh, the other broadcast networks are embedded in big media companies like Disney and Fox, um, and CBS does own the Showtime uh, premium uh, net network as well. But if you're buying CBS, you're really buying a play on uh, U.S. broadcast television. Um, it's been a great business for them. Uh, television advertising's generally been pretty decent over the last, uh, you know, coming out of the last 10 years after the financial crisis. And what's really changed for the better for CBS has been uh, a new revenue stream for them and for the broadcast industry, and that's retransmission fees. Uh, the broadcast networks are finally getting paid by the distributors, the Comcast of the world, uh, to carry their programming. They never got paid for it before. Uh, ESPN always got paid for their programming by the distributors, but the broadcast networks never did up until about uh, seven or eight years ago. And CBS has really been a big beneficiary of that. That's been a driver of their revenue and profits. Uh, that looks to be a pretty good story going forward for CBS. So so why do you believe maybe the stock has not really performed that well this year? I mean, the stock of CBS is basically unchanged. Yep. I mean, that's not to say it hasn't had big moves. 
I mean, this was, you know, a stock trading at 50, uh, let's say, back in September of 2016. Yeah, it's, uh, the media stocks, uh, you know, they've had a great run over the last eight, nine years after the financial crisis. But really in the last year or so, it's been kind of flattish. And, and year to date, you know, the media stocks are pretty flat uh, up a little bit. But the real concerns are cord cutting. That is the number one issue out there for the media sector. If consumers really are cutting the cord in mass everybody's economic model as is at risk the affiliate fees that the content companies get paid that's at risk the advertising revenue uh, that's built upon a large audience that can be delivered that's at risk and so what I think you're seeing media investors do today is try to pick some winners and losers within the group in general um, but right now I think we've had a rough third quarter results coming out of the media sector maybe they can turn it around tonight with CBS who tends to be very bullish about the prospects for the the sector we'll see Disney tomorrow night after the close see what it has to say uh, investors there are particularly concerned about ESPN and the effect that cord cutting is having on the great ESPN. Anything uh, on the horizon that you would point to as far as someone maybe making an acquisition or a run at CBS? I mean, it's a $26 billion market cap right now. Right. Well, we just had a, a, you know, a big M&A trade in the media sector last week when Discovery Communications announced they were buying Scripps Networks. Uh, Viacom, which is a sister company to CBS, it was rumored to be a buyer for Scripps Networks, which really caught people by surprise. Most people didn't view Viacom as a buyer. But ultimately, when you talk about CBS and you talk about Viacom, you're talking about Subner Redstone and his common ownership of both companies. And the question remains, Does do these two companies, should they be uh, you know, maybe in a better position if they were to merge? And remember, they used to be together, then they split apart about 10 years ago. The question is now in a consolidating media world, in a world that's being disrupted by the internet like Netflix, um, do these companies need to be bigger, stronger, uh, have more uh, heft in the marketplace? If so, then the easiest trans transaction for both of these companies, Viacom and CBS, to simply kind of merge back together. All right. Now, you mentioned Disney. So let's move on to there because I want to get your thoughts on ESPN. That has been both an Achilles heel and a, a goldmine for Disney at different times. Right. It, it continues to be by far the largest profit generator for the Walt Disney Company. And really, over the last 20 years, it has been the most consistent uh, profit generator for the company. Um, those days are over. Um, so what you have at Disney now is cord cutting, uh, impacting the growth of their revenue, so putting pressure on their revenue growth, that's a problem. But it's compounded by the fact that their costs are primarily fixed. And when you think about the costs for ESPN, you think about these huge sports contracts with the NFL, with Major League Baseball, with all the college sports uh, leagues around the country, those are big, big ticket items, and they are a fixed cost over many years. And so if you're at, at ESPN, you're seeing your revenue pressured and your costs you know, continuing to go up. Uh, so that's a real profit issue for this company. It's been, you know, really developing over the last two years. And quite frankly, investors are, are very concerned about that. It's definitely impacted Disney, who, you know, despite, you know, the, the, the concerns at ESPN, the other two main businesses of the Walt Disney Company, its theme parks um, and um, uh, its movie business are both doing great. Uh, but again, investors are really focusing on, on ESPN. All right. You want to do Fox, uh, sure. 20, 20, 21st Century Fox, because they're waiting on a deal in the UK for a Sky. Yeah, the next big uh, trade for the, the 21st Century Fox and Rupert Murdoch, you know, one of the great media moguls, is to get even bigger, and, and that is to own complete control of B Sky B, uh, which is this big satellite provider in the UK and in Italy and, and, and Germany. Um, and that is being that is un, under review. It was um, he was kind of thwarted in this transaction about seven years ago. Uh, he's now come back and. The expectation is that transaction will be approved, and that will be a net positive for 21st Century Fox, because a lot of those markets in Europe, there's still more growth to go 
there in terms of pay TV subscribers. It is not saturated like the U.S. market. And so a lot of investors believe that that is a, a better organic growth market than the U.S. right now. Hey, Paul, you know, as, as someone that's been doing this more, really, more years than I know you care to care to admit, is can you give some advice to people that are trying to sort of value these businesses when you got companies like Amazon getting into content and, you know, music from, from Apple and so on? It's hard to kind of get your fingers around this. It really is. I mean, we have, you know, the traditional metrics for media companies, whether that's price to earnings or enterprise value to EBITDA, those are well established. And we know how to value, you know, the Disney's of the world, and the Fox's of the world, and the Comcast's of the world. And, and we have historical benchmarks for when these stocks are expensive or when they're cheap, uh, given their growth outlook. But when you bring in some of these new disruptive stories like Netflix, like Amazon that are coming into the movie business, and you take a look at even at the internet companies, the internet companies are more media companies than they are technology companies. They are driven by advertising revenue, and they trade at different valuation multiples, multiples of revenue, and it's really hard to compare. Thank you very much. Paul Sweeney, here's our expert, U.S. Director, Research Senior Media Internet Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Berkshire Hathaway. The shares are up nearly 9% so far this year, but what will move them higher? Here to tell us more is Tara LaChapelle, our deals columnist for Bloomberg Gadfly, and uh, you can follow her on Twitter at Tara L-A-C-H. Great to have you with us. Thanks for coming into the studio. Um, the report from Berkshire Hathaway last Friday, not greeted by the market with much enthusiasm, but this is a company that has, what, $100 billion in cash? Right, which is almost exactly why it's not being greeted with enthusiasm, ironically, because the results were a little lackluster. Uh, we saw another underwriting loss in the insurance division drag down overall results. So, you know, the whole point of Berkshire's conglomerate is that all these other businesses offset the ones that are having, you know, going through difficult times. And this time it did drag down earnings a little bit. Um, nothing to be concerned about, of course. But I think what it comes down to is they have almost $100 billion in cash now, and they're not really spending it. And so what are the high return opportunities out there? What's the reason to own this stock? And what's Buffett thinking next? So what do you believe uh, is, is necessary for Berkshire Hathaway? Because, you know, they the Burlington Northern Santa Fe uh, acquisition. They just got eight hundred million in right. cash uh, in the uh, from the railroad. Um, also, uh, I understand you know that they want to be even bigger in the energy business. They're trying to acquire the Texas utility uh, Encore. Right. So that deal uh, makes a lot of sense for uh, Burlington Northern, and that business has been great for them. T total home run of an acquisition for Berkshire, but. With all this cash, a deal like Encore, which I believe is around $9 billion, really isn't enough to move the needle that much anymore. It's, it's great for that division. But overall, when you have $100 billion of cash and it's just sitting there with these low returns, it makes sense for Berkshire to start thinking about bigger acquisitions. I mean, we could see the $50 billion to even $100 billion range realistically. It's not crazy to think that they could do something like that. The problem is finding a target that's worth that price and, and would fit in with the conglomerate. Well, you, you mentioned uh, in your story that, you know, the equity investments that Warren Buffett has made, whether it's Kraft Heinz, whether it's airlines, Apple, and so on, that's all been, they've done pretty well. Oh, those have been great. I mean, Apple, it's so funny, right? Because Buffett for so long was opposed to investing in things that really didn't, um, weren't, weren't his expertise. Right, like big tech. industrial companies, yeah, for yeah. example, or insurance businesses. Right, so to to have Apple be sort of this uh, <laughs> incredible investment for them and, and kudos to their um, investing lieutenants there, but it's just been really fun to watch. 
But even though those are doing really well, again, it's like they need to think about a big acquisition to take in-house, not just these equity investments that are doing well. But in, in, in doing your research, do you find that investors in Berkshire Hathaway have a different criteria when it comes to what they do with their money? They want to be there because Warren Buffett's there. Right. And I, and I think that's where the issue is now, because if the reason you own the stock is because Buffett can take that money that all these businesses are throwing off and invest it far better than your return would be if he had paid you know, a dividend or was buying back stock at these levels, then, I mean, we're looking at this and we're waiting for him to do that. And there really hasn't been a whole lot of deal activity in the past year. So, I mean, he did do the precision cast parts deal. Now that's closed. That's been doing very well for the manufacturing division. But it's like, okay, well, what's next now? Because the reason a shareholder's own the stock is because they want to see him invest the money. And if he's not going to find a, a great target that's really going to move the needle, then it begs the question, you know, do does Berkshire start to pay a dividend? Right. But, the, but do, I guess my point is, do investors care? I mean, I, think- I understand from a theoretical point of view, but when you go to the uh, the annual meeting in Omaha, you don't find people saying, oh, I wish you know, oh, I wish right. they do this. I wish they do that. Yeah, like, no one's pounding the table saying, no. you know, they, I mean, everyone trusts Buffett. I think the problem is Buffett is going to be 87 this month and people are starting to think about what does Berkshire look like after Buffett? And I think he needs to sort of open the door for his successor to have that wiggle room, you know, have good deal opportunities, have the ability to pay a dividend if, if that's going to be the reality in this sort of slow growth world. Um, I think Buffett sort of needs to start giving commentary on that. And I think that's what people are looking for. It's not that they're thinking he's, you know, not living up to what he's promised them or anything, but it's just that they're waiting to see, well, what's Berkshire look like now for the next 10, 15, 20 years? Maybe he's just waiting for the right pitch, right? I mean, because I I note that just, uh, I guess it was over the last month when uh, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch uh, announced, you know, that they were paying uh, Buffett because of his uh, participation. And, you know, he strikes these sort of idiosyncratic deals with preferred stock that, you know, they really pay off. Right. I mean, the Kraft Heinz deal, same thing. I mean, that's been great for Berkshire. I think we're waiting to see uh, Kraft Heinz do something else and that Buffett will sort of bankroll the deal and get another sort of high return preferred stock situation again. Um, But I I think it's All you need is a really big sell-off. Right, right. But, or right. you know, you need someone to get into a lot of trouble. But also, I think it, it's it's a little more nuanced than that now too, because you have all these big companies that are thinking about acquisitions themselves. So it's a much more competitive M and A environment right now. Buffett is used to someone calling him up and saying, you know, we want to sell to you. Here's our price. I don't think that that's as realistic nowadays. I think there's so much M and A happening, and people are paying incredible prices for some of these deals. And I don't know that Buffett is willing to, you know, overpay, of course. So it becomes a little more tricky. And then also he's looking for companies with really solid management teams that want to be around for a really long time. And with all this activist investors out there and a lot of shakeups up top. And, you know, I, I think it's just it's becoming a lot harder to find companies that fit his criteria. Thank you very much for coming in and spending time with us. Uh, Tara LaChapelle is our deals columnist for Bloomberg Gadfly, speaking about Berkshire Hathaway and that $100 billion of cash. All right, no vacation when it comes to negotiations of what is the future of Sprint. And here to tell us more is Alex Sherman, our deals reporter for Bloomberg News. Alex, always a pleasure. Uh, maybe you could just give us the lay of the land because I, I there are a lot of moving parts here. You got Sprint, T-Mobile, Comcast, Charter, and go ahead. I'm sure there must be something else I'm forgetting. 
I'm sure there is, Tim. You, you, you basically got the gist of it there, but already that's quite a bit. So last week we did a bunch of reporting suggesting that SoftBank and its billionaire owner Masayoshi's son uh, was considering buying Charter, uh, which would be a huge deal, one of the largest deals ever, probably, let's say, about $150 billion after you tack on a reasonable premium. Uh, SoftBank has not made a formal bid for Charter, uh, but what we reported was that it was at least considering it, and this would unite Sprint, the fourth largest U.S. wireless player, with Charter, the second largest U.S. cable provider, and give the United States its first true wireless-slash-cable combined company if it were to happen. What my colleague Scott Moritz and I reported last night was that in addition to this, Sprint has also resumed talks about a potential merger with T-Mobile, something that has been sort of batted around by both sides for years. Uh, You should think of this as Sprint covering its bases before it spends $150 billion on Charter. It probably wants to see if a deal with T-Mobile can be done because there are so many synergies in this deal uh, that they would be doing themselves a disservice if they didn't look very hard at it. So I think that's where we are right now, where Sprint is looking at both options. Well, what about just let's talk about Sprint for just a second, because I understand in the last quarter they lost 39,000 customers. Uh, Is there something inherently broken at Sprint? There is something inherently broken at Sprint as Sprint stands today. I mean, this has been a long-time money-losing operation. The, The bet on Sprint is that they are well positioned for tomorrow's wireless world. So today we all have what's known as an LTE standard or other people call it 4G. In a 5G world, this would be you know 5G standing for generation, uh, many people feel like Sprint has the correct wireless spectrum or wireless airwaves uh, that if combined with so-called small cell technology, which uh, is owned in large part by cable companies, but also Sprint owns some, uh, that Sprint can actually be a much stronger competitor. However, uh, the finances are what they are today, and that's why Masayoshi's son, the founder of SoftBank, who owns 80% plus of Sprint, has been so aggressive in trying to do a deal, because Sprint as it stands today is not well positioned at all. So it needs to be a much more robust company. You combine that with T-Mobile, you combine it with Charter, you combine it with some other company, then Sprint can sort of get from where it is today to the 2020s when 5G technology will kick in. And theoretically, Sprint would be a much stronger company then uh, because of the airwaves it owns. I like this idea that, you know, it's all in the future, right? It's all in the creation of this rhetorical uh, sort of make sense uh, program. But, you know, it it just makes me think of John Ledger and T-Mobile because when he came in, people were leaving T-Mobile for dead, but they actually took some initiatives that have not only changed the industry, but have forced the competition to follow them. Why doesn't Sprint take a leaf out of their book? Well, that's a great question, and I suppose a merger with T-Mobile would do that, because in the end here, Masayoshi Son, who has a 300-year plan, has, uh, and that's not an exaggeration, he literally has a 300-year plan for his company, um, has two options here. Uh, if you buy Charter, Masayoshi Son would stay in control of this new company uh, and therefore would be able to dictate its terms. If they merge with T-Mobile, SoftBank would actually have to sell Sprint, and it would be run by T-Mobile 
and John Ledger. So I think the, the, the idea there would be Sprint would say, look, we, we understand here that this combined company is stronger. And frankly, T-Mobile, you've done a better job than us over the past few years of running this company. It's certainly possible uh, that Sprint could have done exactly what T-Mobile did, underpriced, be very aggressive, have a much better marketing plan, sort of failed on all of these. Uh, if, if you follow John Ledger on Twitter, he's constantly mocking Sprint and its sort of second-rate promotions and also its second-rate network. Uh, so the idea here then would be this combined company would in fact be run by Ledger and Sun would give up on Sprint. He would still own some of the company, but he would no longer be the controlling shareholder. So very much two different outlooks there. Some people tell me the idea would be after Sprint bought Charter, if that's the plan that happens, it would then go after T-Mobile. And in that case, SoftBank actually would be able to maintain control of the company because it would be so much bigger than T-Mobile. Of course, it is still to be determined if T-Mobile's German owners, Deutsche Telekom, would even be interested in selling the company. We know for the time being they are not, which is why the Sprint-Timo deal may actually happen with the Germans buying and consolidating the new Sprint Timo company. Of course, that would mean antitrust uh, regulations and a review, yeah? Why doesn't Masayoshi-san just hire John Ledger? Well, that's a good question. Um, I think part of the reason is that uh, he feels like even John Ledger at this, maybe it's too little too late. Look, he, he did hire a, a, a person named Maurice Claure, or excuse me, Marcelo Claure, um, I would say a few years ago at this point, uh, to try to turn around the network. The previous CEO's name was Dan Hesse. Uh, so the idea at the time was to bring in someone that Masayoshi Son was familiar with to turn around the company. And look, if you if you go on a pure stock performance, even though Sprint continues to struggle, actually, you could make a very strong case that Sprint has turned it around. I mean, their shares were trading around $2 a share at one point. Right. Now, now eight... at $8.73. Now, you a lot, got of, that it. Is, a lot yep. of that's M&A premium, but still, hats off to Chloray and the Sprint team for getting the share price up. We've got to leave it there. Alex Sherman, our tech media and telecom M&A reporter for Bloomberg News. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.